At some point or another, many of us have fantasized about being a writer. Not just any type of writer, but an acclaimed author who captivates both kids and adults alike with their whimsical and enchanting writing. Well, guess what? Today's guest, author Natalie Lloyd, had all of those dreams come true and more. I'm talking books optioned for television by Sony TriStar and New York Times bestsellers list, people. Whoop, whoop, we're going big time. But first, hello there. I am Jennifer Perkins, and this is the Creative Queso Podcast. I am pumped that you are here to listen to me talk to authors, podcasters, artists, seamsters, and more all about the business of being creative and the creativity behind running a business. You know, and we talk a little bit about queso as well, you know, hence the name. And I love that you guys keep tagging me on Instagram with your bowls of queso. Apparently, it seems like listening to this podcast is not only inspiring people about their business, but it's also making them hungry. Whoops, sorry, not sorry. Today's guest, Natalie Lloyd, came into my world, making me hungry for another dairy product, ice cream. Well, wait, is queso really dairy? Is it actually cheese? I don't know. I digress. But anyway, her first novel, A Snicker of Magic, is about many things, including mysterious do-getters, nomadic families with wandering hearts, and, like I said, ice cream. There is lots of ice cream. And as much as my 10-year-old would have loved for me to conduct this entire interview with Natalie all about the nuances of her books, like The Problem Children and The Keys to the Extraordinary, this interview is for those of you who are still dreaming about writing your own book. What is a query letter? Do you need a literary agent? How much press and marketing lies on the author's shoulders? And how do you summon the creative muse when working under a deadline? Sure, Natalie and her books have accolades from places like NPR, Amazon, Parents Magazine, and Entertainment Weekly, but she was just as sweet to talk to as I bet the ice cream in Midnight Gulch is to eat. Okay, we are in. Hello, Natalie, and thank you for being on the Creative Queso podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be so fun. You know, I thought it was either fate or perhaps a snicker of magic that we would finally be having this conversation because I know you and I have like been emailing and we talked about, you know, our common love of ice cream and binge watching Outlanders. Yes. But I have two fun facts for you. One, did you know that we have the same web designer? No, but that is super fun. She's very cool. She is cool. How do you know Jenny? Because she's from here in Austin. Really, I just did some research and found her that way. So it was just a lucky, lucky chance for me. Oh, that is so weird. She is the first person besides a family member that I ever let hold my baby. (gasps) That's so special. I know. So I've known her forever. And she did both my Jennifer Perkins website and my Creative Queso website. And I saw her name on your your website. And I was like, what? Like, that's hilarious. Oh, she's great. She's professional, but she's really cool. When I send an email that says, can we do something that's kind of like this? And so, I mean, it makes no sense at all. It's completely nonsensical rambling. And she makes it look really pretty. And 
and good. So I know I that's why her. exactly why I love her. <laughs> I just shoot off like random emails and she understands what I'm trying to say. And the second coincidence is we both know Natalie Z. Do you know Natalie oh, and her yes. daughter Chloe? They're who recommended your books to me oh, in the first place. Sweet. Yes, I do know them. I love her Instagram. I travel vicariously through her. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I posted on my Facebook a while back. I was like, what are some good books to read with my, I don't know. She was probably, Tallulah was probably nine then. And she recommended them and said, we just like loved a snicker of magic. And I got it. And we loved a snicker of magic too. Oh, I'm so glad. And all of those, all of the books that have followed. So if I'm doing my timeline correct, was A Snicker of Magic your first book? That was the first novel that I wrote. Yes. Well, not the first one I wrote. The first one that was published. Okay. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, awesome. And then right out of the gate, like, how did you go from like, hey, I just put out my first book to like, hey, my book's a New York Times bestseller. Like, that is, <laughs> that's quite a story. How, how did that it all is. happen? And It is. And I think. Like anything else, there's a much longer process than people see. When I get to put cool things like that in a bio on my website, it makes mm-hmm. it sound like they happened in very short order, and they definitely didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are lots of novels and half novels that I've written that um, thankfully will never be published. Some of them are just horrible. Uh, but I was learning how to do it. And then before A Snicker of Magic, I had tried to get another novel published. And we can talk about the publishing process later if you want, but I queried agents and all of these things that writers who listen are going to be familiar with. I always say it's like a dystopian version of the Oregon Trail when you're trying to get published. Like, you're you're so happy one day you're making progress and then, womp, womp, you know. Right. Um, you just get rejected over and over. So um, it was a long process to get there, but I, I sent in a query for a snicker of magic. I sent it to several agents and some of them rejected it. And then one agent, her name is Susie Townsend. She's phenomenal. Um, emailed me back and said she loved it, which was a shock. I remember I was driving with my mom and we were listening to old crow medicine show and my phone binged and she checked it because we were kind of on agent alert at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And she told me what it said. So I was just over the moon and she wanted to call and talk on the phone about the book, which is a big step. I thought she was probably going to give me ideas for revisions and then offer to read it again. I thought that has to be the best case scenario. I remember I sweat through the t-shirt I was wearing when we (laughs) talked. I was so nervous, Um, but she didn't, she loved it and wanted to represent it. So I started working with her and then agents send the book out to editors because most publishers don't take unsolicited manuscripts at this point. So Um, She sent it to editors and an editor at Scholastic named Mallory Cass loved it. And I love Scholastic because they do Harry Potter and, um, you know, the Hunger Games. And I grew up reading the Babysitter's Club. So Mm -hmm. that was my moment of squeals when I got to (laughs) talk to the publishing house that gave me the Babysitter's Club. I was so happy. And it takes about two years. I think I, I started working with Scholastic two years before the book came out and really Really, from then on, I feel like with any kind of writing, and maybe it's like this in any kind of art that you actually start making that that you produce so people will read it and buy it and that kind of thing, um, it's kind of the right moment, right reader. It just seemed to connect, and I'm so grateful. I don't even know why it did, um, but so many librarians and teachers and bloggers really championed the book. And it was funny to me because one of the common rejections I got for a snicker of magic is that it was too quiet for a first novel. 
So hmm. I was not expecting its reach to be very far. I knew my parents would buy a copy. <laughs> Beyond that, I didn't know what to expect. Um, so that was a shock, and I was so grateful. It was actually two years after it came out that it randomly hit the New York Times bestseller list. Um, I was walking with my dog, and we were close to the duck pond, and I remember the exact spot where my editor called and told me, and I screamed so loud that the neighborhood watch was probably all peeking out of their blinds <laughs> to see what was up. And the ducks were flying away, exactly. like, who is this scary exactly. woman? <laughs> <laughs> So it's been a ride with that book. And even now, it's been out for five years now. I'm always so happy that people are reading it for the first time or that classes are reading it together for the first time. Sometimes I get art from readers and I save all of that because they connected to a character or a part of the story. Um, so that's how it was a long process. And even when a book comes out, I guess in the back of my mind, I thought rejection is over once you're published, but it's definitely not. I mean, nobody's going to love everything you write. So there were ups and downs for sure, but it's just been incredible um, to see what that book's done because so many people have believed in it. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, you know, my daughter and I loved it. Oh, thank so you. Thank we're on our you. third one of your books now because now, you know, you're right up, you're in the faves list oh at my our gosh, house. That's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and it's interesting you say that because it did, you know, as I mentioned, it came from word of mouth from Natalie. And then I have a girlfriend here who is a librarian at a really large elementary school in Austin. And she was telling me like that she can't keep your books in stock. Oh, that's awesome. Especially with fourth grade girls, apparently. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it is, you know, it, it is interesting that she loved it and that, you know, I guess like all these people got behind it and championed it. And it really is all about word of mouth, no matter what business. It really is. And I think that was the kicker there. I'm just really lucky and grateful that people who read it kept sharing it with people they love. I think that's that's what helped that little book get going. <laughs> and then I think it's also interesting that you mentioned, like, I think a lot of people... And I hear this again and again with people I interview that it seems like there was this like overnight success story because I have a story similar to that too. how like a magazine featured me when I was a jewelry designer and then I had to quit my day job and blah, 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 blah. And it sounded like it was this like overnight success story. But the truth of the matter is there was like two years of me like you know, making jewelry on my lunch break and right after work, exactly. and, you know, like yeah. crazy hustling. Like it wasn't just like I woke up and was like, oh my gosh, look at this crazy, <laughs> amazing thing that happened. Right. Right. And I think too, it's probably like this with what you've done as well, but with writing, it seems like when you finally get to the point when you're ready to put your work out there, when you're hoping for publication, that's when you get inundated on social media with these success stories that do feel like they happened overnight. Like, you know, somebody queries and the next day they had agents dueling with pool noodles for <laughs> the right to read their book. And, you know, it's like the seven figure deal, which doesn't happen. I mean, that's insanely rare, but, but it's different. I mean, every story takes longer. Some books never get published that are really amazing. Um, you know, every journey is different. But mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't trade any of it now looking back. I mean, it was hard at the time. I have friends who were querying their novels, and I remember what it was like to be in that unknown space and also how vulnerable it feels to put your work out there. Like, it's not just yours anymore when you take that step. And I know you've experienced that, too, with your work. Um, it's a really scary moment, but it's exciting. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I want to touch on a couple of things you mentioned. One, you know, I obviously only have experience within like the craft book scene and the how-to book scene, and it's a totally kind of different, you know, for in that world, you kind of can go straight to the publisher, you know, and pitch an idea or maybe oh, cool. they come to you. So I'm, you know, I have some friends now that are, you know, aspiring children's fiction or young adult fiction writers. So you're saying like step one in your genre is go is find an agent to take you on, typically. not go straight to the publisher. Right. Typically. And like I said, everybody does something different. I have a friend who writes young adult and she um, is independently published and she's done great. I wanted to go through a traditional publisher uh, for lots of reasons. One, because I love um, the way they invest in every aspect of the book from the editing process to the cover art. Um, and in particular, getting the book into schools, which is something I think most authors who write children's books would have a hard time doing on their own. That's um, true. So that was really important to me. And yeah, most publishers are unsolicited. Usually you can check their website. I think a few are still open to be queried directly. But for me, working with an agent has made my career basically because she doesn't just negotiate deals she helps editorially she usually reads my books first and gives feedback she is always thinking of my career and a good move to take next and so she has been such an advocate and she's a good friend now too so she's incredible I always say she's like a fairy godmother if fairy godmothers were young and hot (laughs) (laughs) I love it and and you know another thing you touched on is I think that sometimes people think like, oh, you know, you had a snicker of magic and it was on the New York Times bestseller. So every single idea you pitch is going to automatically, everybody's going to be like, yes, yes, yes. But you mentioned like, even now you still sometimes face a no, no, no. Oh, totally. Even from my publisher, you know, I mean, there was an idea that I had and I still love and I still can't wait to write it, but they didn't feel like that was a good next step. So sometimes you have to compromise that way. And I do feel like it's worth it to get to work with a great publisher. My editor is a good friend of mine now. I love the way she has helped me see story and see characters and and think about what I'm writing. But yeah, there are definitely moments when I'm like, oh, you know, there's something I really want to do and it needs to be pushed back a little bit. Um, And then also criticism in any area. I think I don't know, when people hear children's publishing, they think it's a very rosy and happy and <laughs> like <Yeah>. nobody's <laughs> ever, but it's just like anything else. I mean, people are understandably very um, passionate about their mm-hmm. opinions, whether they do or don't like a book. And I understand that to a point because I am very passionate about books I love, but if I'm not into it, I just stop reading and read something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know that I have like the mindset of the critic when it comes to writing. I probably do in other areas. I feel like I'm most critical like in traffic or <laughs> right. know, in the drive-through. Maybe I'm a critic. But um, so, yeah, that can feel like rejection all over again, and that's very hard. Okay. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I guess most people think like if you're a band and you had a hit record and then you come back and you're like, I'm going to write this other record and it's totally different than the first record. You know, I think people forget that like, you know, sometimes those people can come back and say, like, no, like, why don't you wait and do that one in, like, two more records or two more books? Exactly. Or, yeah. You know, maybe that it's not that they don't love the idea for the book, but they're like, let's do, like, two more like this first and then. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. We'll slip that in. So <laughs> is it safe to assume, because here's another question I get asked a lot or 
a lot of my friends that are aspiring writers are curious about is it's safe to assume that you're a full time author now. Like I am right now, um, thankfully, and that can always change. I mean, you know what that's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're actually making a career of making something that depends on whether people read it or not, or whether people pick it up or not. So mm-hmm. right now I'm able to do it. And one of the big reasons, honestly, is because I have a very supportive spouse who has insurance that's really good. Um, <laughs> Amen. I know that. I yes, know that kind of gig. <laughs> yes. I was doing this for... Um, full-time before I met him, but I had like my own insurance policy taken out, which basically didn't cover anything past like, you know, a splinter (laughs) and practical things that you don't think about or something else that's kind of boring to talk about. But I don't think people always realize it. I didn't until I got in is you actually have to pay taxes, you know, even on Mm -hmm. (laughs) this creative work that you love. And so all of those things make it really hard. And really, I think some of my happiest writer friends are the ones who have a career that they love and pour their heart into. And then writing is like this secret safe place they get to tuck into sometimes and, and make books. But yeah, I love doing it full time. I'm really grateful I can do that for now. Hopefully that will last. So yeah, fingers crossed. Yes, I know fingers it, crossed. It, I know how it goes. It's always like hit or miss when it rains. It, it when it rains, it pours. So were you full time when you were writing a snicker of magic, or were you like working? I had um I had kind of transitioned into full time writing. I went to college and studied journalism only because journalism was the only degree you didn't have to take any math. <laughs> to oh my complete. gosh, it's so funny. <laughs> Which is a horrible reason to pick a college major, Um, but that's what I did. And then when I graduated, I thought, I have no desire to tell stories that aren't fictional. (laughs) Um, I mean, I do. I love people. I love human interest stories, but just those hard news stories, those, they didn't stir my heart at all. And so I was kind of lost. I didn't know what to do. I had all this student loan debt. I moved back home with my parents. You know, the one thing you don't want to do after college is over. Mm -hmm. And I started working um, in my church in student ministry, which was really fun to be around teenagers all the time. They made me laugh. I still sometimes find myself laughing at things they said to me. And this was like, gosh, 15 years ago at this point. Um, So I did that and I did some freelance writing at the time and then went to grad school, grad school briefly and decided that was definitely not what I wanted to do either. And it was kind of coming home from that when I thought, really, it's now or never. And I asked my parents about it because they're very straightforward with me. I remember asking them one time when we were watching American Idol, I'm like, if I hadn't been good at singing, but I really wanted to do American Idol, would you have told me? And my dad said, I would have, uh, the car would have broken down in quotes. (laughs) But my mom was like, yeah, I would have told you. I mean, they're not, (laughs) they're not cagey about things like that. And I was like, I really want to try to write. I'm going to, you know, keep doing these other freelance things, but I really want to try to write fiction. And maybe because my parents are nuts, they were like, finally, that's what you should be doing. So (laughs) I moved back in with my parents Um, and I did some side jobs and that kind of thing. But really, I just focused on writing a novel. And like I said, the first ones did not get published. They're still hidden away in drawers and that kind of thing. But eventually, eventually, um, I found my way to the book that did get published. And that was Snicker. Oh, that's a good story. Well, I want to say two things. One, the college that I went to, I I went there because my parents did research on the college in Texas where you had to take the least amount of math to get a psych degree. And that's honestly why I exactly. went. Exactly. 
<laughs> I knew we were kindred spirits. I know. There was one like 20 minutes from my parents' house, but you had to take it up to calculus. And they're like, and no, we're going to move her to Austin because she only has to take statistics and algebra one. <laughs> oh, my math was so hard. I remember in high school taking all these practice tests online. I remember having a computer game with a haunted mansion just to try to learn algebra enough to pass it for my ACT. Right. It's, it's a tough one for me. It is. Matt, you know, those of us that are on that creative side, sometimes it's math, <laughs> math those taxes, not my jam. they are not our friends. Well, I ask about the day job because I'm sure this is like even more so true sometimes for writers. But, you know, I know a lot of times people that are creatives, you know, think to themselves like, well, I need this like full day to write or to make jewelry or to get in the zone. But, you know, when you have a job and you're trying to say, right, it's hard to like just all of a sudden like quickly pop into the zone to like get into your writings. But we can't all do like in misery where the guy goes and like (laughs) locks himself away. I mean, you know, minus the Kathy Bates part. And so like, do you have any like tips or thoughts? Like how do you like quickly channel the muse when you have like a short burst of time that you can get some writing done? Oh, that's a good question. So a few thoughts on that. Um, One is that now that I'm writing for an editor and on a deadline, I have to make the muse come to me. (laughs) Right. I think one of the luxuries I had early on is that I could wait. I could spend a lot more time trying to craft the sentence that I wanted to sound perfect, whatever that means. That's another um, issue I'm always relearning is that something doesn't have to be perfect to be good and that everybody's idea of perfect is different anyway. Um, but one, because I'm, I'm trying to get books out now and I'm expected to have them out at a certain time, sometimes I just have to sit down and do it. And having it out helps. I can always come back to it and make it better and make it stronger. But just getting it out is important. And I think that's the biggest thing for me, knowing I don't have to type out the exact sentence that I want mm-hmm. as soon as I sit down to write. Um, because it's never going to look as good as I see it in my head, if that makes sense. You know, I told somebody reading is still way more magical to me than writing most of the time. Sometimes I still get lost in that, you know, wonder world and writing is so much fun, but, um, but it's still not like reading. And I think that's because you're reading something that's finished. You're not seeing the revisions and the edits and all that. You just get to see this beautiful Mm -hmm. end piece and get totally swept up in it. Um, so that's what it is for me. And honestly, there are days I don't do a lot of writing. Some days I do more administrative stuff. I do... Um, school visits, which also helps um, writers who are working full time. That's another way you can kind of supplement your income. You do school visits and speaking engagements and that kind of thing. Um, but, but yeah, getting back to writing is the most important thing. And whether you have another job to go with it or whether it's life, it's hard. I still don't even know how sometimes to, um, to sit down and write. I think that part of you that makes the best most beautiful creative stuff is also the part of you that gets drained really quickly just by life. You know, mm-hmm. when things get really hard or when your job is really taxing and you just want to come home and, and drink wine and watch Bravo, or maybe that's just <laughs> what I do. <laughs> um, it's just hard and learning how to find your way back to that creative place can, can take a while. So sometimes I just have to sit down and do it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the words are, are what lead me back to it. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. Like if I have a blog post, not, you know, a, 
a New York Times bestselling novel, but if I have like a blog post, I have to write. If I just get like the skeleton of it down, somehow it's so much more less daunting. Yeah, like it's just get out. it started, like get it outlined, like and then you can go back in and make it frilly and totally yes. bust out the sar- the thesaurus and all the good things. <laughs> <Right>. Like <laughs> just get it out. Well, good to know. Yeah, I remember when I first had my daughter too. It was like before that with my jewelry business, I was used to like you know, all day I could be in my studio. And then by like the seventh piece of jewelry, I was like really hitting my zone. And then it's like, you know, once you like don't have that, like you've got a nap time or you've got this window in between job things, it's like you don't get to get to the seventh piece of jewelry where you get in your zone. Like you better find a zone like stat. Right. And so you got to kind of, you got to work at that sometimes. Totally. All right. So when we were chatting, you mentioned that you are a firm believer, and I am too, that children's fiction is not just for fiction, that it's for adults too, which I totally agree. I think I enjoy like reading those the books with my daughter more than like any books I like that are supposed to be like adult fiction. Yeah, I'm like, but yeah, I like to Lilith's sure. books better. So, <laughs> so what did you mean by that, that they're not just for kids? So I think... This is something I've seen in my friends. I think they're just trying to be good friends when they'll read one of my books and they're surprised by how much they like it. Not because it's mine or it's great or anything like that. Like they're surprised because they thought it was a kid's book. And um, then they start finding more. My mother-in-law now loves middle grade fiction. Um, That's what she goes to the library to find. And I think it's because it's such rich writing, great characterization, and the pace is solid because you're trying to pace a novel for the pickiest reader in the world to get into. Um, So you have to kind of stay on top of it and keep things moving along. And really... Um, I mean, this sounds kind of corny to say, but I think I'm still 12 in my heart. I think I'm just, (laughs) we're all just grown up kids. I think we still have the same vulnerabilities and worries and fears. Um, We just tend to get a little bit more cynical maybe as Mm -hmm. we age. So there's something about um, children's literature, middle grade in particular, that takes you back to that place when you're a little bit more open hearted, when you're a little bit more likely to see that there's plenty of magic in the world and that there are lots of good people in the world. And I think it's incredible. I think it's an exciting time for children's literature too. There's so many great novels, so many diverse novels and um, whether you like magic or just contemporary realistic or novels in verse, um, there's such a great play on form and and it's great. It's great for every reader, no matter how old they are. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm in my 40s and like I said, I loved it. If you could see me right now, I'm like giving the like goofiest like little grin, like it's true. It's all true. I do love me some, oh, <laughs> some good, young adult fiction. <laughs> yeah, and I love finding the new stuff. I mean, you're right. You forget until you start reading it like, oh, this was that age when I loved reading and loved like getting into those characters and those stories, you know, and you right. think you outgrow that stuff. You know, it's like riding a bike. You're like, oh, oh, grew riding a bike or whatever. But then you get on a bike and you're like you know what like I still love like riding a bike it's like you know you don't outgrow that type of fiction or you know or that that love of whimsy like you think you do but that's just you telling yourself that it's so true and you know I think the big change happened for me in college I had taken I took tons of lit classes um and I went to a children's lit class which was probably my favorite class I had in college and it's because suddenly I loved reading 
again. Um, you know, there's a poem by Billy Collins where he talks about how people just want to take a poem and hold it up to the light and torture a confession out of it and all that. And I kind of feel like that's what reading can become. Um, you don't just enjoy it for the sake of it. I was, mm-hmm. I was watching something. Oh, my husband is obsessed with this show called Mind Hunters about serial killers, which is not exactly my jam. But I, I just like, finished oh, binging on all it. All these details about. Okay, he wants me to try it, so maybe someday. But I was like, let me give you every detail about Jonathan Groff's career, because I do love musicals. And so then I forced him to watch a little bit of Hamilton, and I don't think musicals are his jam at all. But I said, don't you sometimes see art that just excites you? It just makes you happy. And that's what children's books did for me, too, um, in that class. We read Charlotte's Web again, and I thought, I had no it was this good when I read it in like second or third grade, but it amazes me that it's this good to me now. It's mm-hmm. still one of my favorite first lines in any book ever. It's so good. And book after book, it's like my heart came awake again. And I honestly didn't try writing it at that point. I thought, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I thought, okay, I'm going to write fiction for adults. And then if I get really, really, really good at that, then I'll try writing a book for kids. Because to me, those are the best books. That was like the highlight if I could get to that point and write a book for kids. Um, so that took several years to try. I think I finally realized someday has to be today or <laughs> you're never going to get to it. And I started trying and realizing you actually do get better the more you practice and, and writing with that voice in that frame of mind, it just felt right. I think you've probably experienced that. Um, when you create and the artists, mm-hmm. you know, um, you finally find something and you think that's just, that's where my heart's at. You find your wheelhouse. So mm-hmm. you find your, your groove. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's such an important lesson for people, for writers, for jewelry makers, for whatever, when you start making that thing for yourself that like lights you up as opposed to trying to make like what you think other people want. Oh, exactly. That's the key to write what you love. There's mm-hmm. a difference yeah, to because, that kind of work. Yeah. Because it comes through in your, in your work and your writing, no matter what you're, if you're making soap or if you're writing books, it comes through. <laughs> it does. So do you think that class was how you found like your sweet spot of like writing young adult fiction? Was that what kind of you like rereading Charlotte's Web, like kind of brought you back? Like this I is it. I think that this was where... it because that kind of pulled me back to other things. I started with classics that I love. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is my favorite book of all time. Um, I think it's because that was the first book that I felt. I didn't just read it. I felt it. It was like I could feel Narnia when Lucy felt Narnia. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've. I had written to you a little bit. I have a bone disease. Um, And I know we were going to talk about that a little bit anyway, because that influenced my writing a lot when I was younger. Um, But part of that is that my bones break really easily. And I remember when I was a kid and that would happen, I would go to the hospital. I would um, be in so much pain, but I would close my eyes and I would imagine Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I would imagine what his fur would feel like between my fingers and that, you know, like I could feel his roar inside my chest. And even though it was fictional, the courage it gave me was real. And Mm -hmm. reading it as an adult and remembering the experience I'd had with it and also seeing that it still held up for me, it didn't feel dated at all, made me realize it's, I mean, I think books are as close to magic as we can get in this world. So, um, so that's what got me back in the groove. I started with my favorites and then I moved on to newer things. And that's kind of the pattern I followed. That's awesome. Yeah, because I think some, you know, 
all creatives find that like when you realize like, oh, watercolor, that's where it's at for me. Or, you know, or you love yarn and you're like, oh, I was trying to be a knitter, but really it's all about crochet for me. Like, so it's awesome that you, that you found your way back to that. So, you know, you, you just touched on it, but do you, you want to talk a little bit more about, you mentioned how much your imagination helped you navigate having a physical disability as a kid. So, and like now you mentioned like, imagination is now part of your day job. It like is, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mind talking about it at all. I was born with a bone disease called osteogenesis imperfecta, which sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Um, <laughs> and it just meant that I had brittle bones. There are all kinds of different degrees of it. And I had um, a pretty mild form, but uh, my parents discovered it when I broke my leg at 10 weeks old. I was just kicking around in my crib and my leg broke. And, um, following that there were more breaks that made no sense. And finally, that's how it was diagnosed. So, um, from the time I started school until seventh grade, I was in a wheelchair at school just because any kind of like, um, you know, like kids running into me accidentally, or if I'd fallen going somewhere that could be a break. And then at home I would use a walker or sometimes I was in a wheelchair at home too, depending on where I was in the recovery process. And I think, um, that's definitely a reason I leaned hard into books and hard into writing. I know plenty of writers who, who just loved it because they loved it. But I think for me, it was also, you know, I can't play sports, which was a big deal in my hometown. I grew up in a Mm -hmm. tiny little Southern town where sports were, you know, the end all be all. Um, But I couldn't do that. I couldn't run at recess and play, but I could get lost in a book. I could, Um, you know, when I started writing my own stories, I could explore anywhere I wanted. I just realized very early on that my imagination was absolutely unlimited. And I think that's helped me even now feel like I have less limits. Um, you know, I hadn't actually broken anything in a long time. And then, as you know, earlier this summer, I slipped in dog drool and, um, and broke my leg. So I'm still, (laughs) I'm still recovering from that. And, um, and so, yeah, it's kind of back in that place again. I've been remembering a lot lately what that was like when I was younger because I've got this new book that I'm working on, and this will be the first character I've ever written who actually has OI. Um, so it's, I guess it's research, not the way I prefer to do research, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I definitely feel like I'm back in that place again where you're realizing that, um, I don't know, that you're unlimited inside your head, I guess, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. No, it totally does. So your new, so the new character is going to be, I guess, what sort of loosely based on you and your life, you know, or maybe only in that regard. Um, you know, she's going on an adventure. I wish I could go on. Like, I feel like I try to give my characters like way cooler things to do than I get to do. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been, I love theater, like I told you, but I'm not a good actress. I can't sing. I have no talent for that. But sometimes I feel like writing is sort of my theater where I get to pretend to be other people and go places I really want to go. And, and I've never been. So in some ways, she'll definitely be like me. Um, I think all of my characters have been like me a little bit. Um, and then in other ways, she's definitely her own little person. So when is, so since you brought it up, not me, so tell us a little <laughs> bit, is when will the new book be out? Like what so, can we expect? Tell us what you can tell us. I can't talk much about that one 
yet um, because that's just sort of start that actually just got the official go for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> um, exciting. Congratulations. So it'll be a, well, thank you. It'll be a couple of years, I would say, before that comes out, maybe a little longer. I'd like to take a little bit more time with this one. Um, but I do have a book out next year for sure. I wrote a trilogy called The Problem Children. Mm -hmm. Um, and that final book will be out next spring. That's been really fun to write. It takes place on a pirate ship. So I've loved tucking into work every morning, (laughs) pretending I'm on a pirate ship too. And, um, and then I have another, um, cool project I've been working on that I can't talk about yet, but I can soon. So I'll put it like on Instagram and all that as soon as I can talk about it. But another story that will be available in a different format. So it's exciting. Oh, does that, because I did read somewhere that a snicker of magic has been optioned for TV. It has. Um, And what I was talking about is actually a little different, but I can tell you a little bit about that too. That was bananas when that (laughs) happened. I remember I had just turned in a book, a really hard revision, and my agent emailed and said, okay, now that you're done with this, I have some news. Um, Sony (laughs) TriStar is interested in, you know, adapting this. And I was like, what? like oh freaking out um but I got to talk to them I was actually in Los Angeles for a school visit and got to meet with them while I was doing that and and hear about their heart for the story so it's one of those things that you know books get optioned that never go any further and I'm totally aware this may be as far as it goes but I still celebrate every tiny milestone like it's a big freaking deal so yeah um I just saw the script for the pilot episode and it's really cool and also really weird to know that that's something that came out of my head kind of inspired that, made the ball get rolling on that thing. So I'm very hopeful for the next step. Um, Gita Malik, who is an incredible filmmaker and um, screenwriter, did the pilot episode. And so it's exciting to be working with her and, and with a team that likes it. So we've all got our fingers crossed, hoping it's going to keep moving. Ooh, I've got my fingers crossed, too. Oh, thank you so much. Tallulah and I will cross all the fingers, all the toes over here. I love it. I love it. Thank you. That will be super exciting. So, you know, once you you have, you know, books written for, you know, that are now being optioned into possible TV shows and you, you know, get New York Times reviews, like, does that – change your approach to writing like you and I talked about this over email like it I'm sure it makes it more difficult to just go at it from this like willy-nilly place of creativity like you can't help but think like are they gonna like it this way is the editor gonna tell me to do it this way like like how does that change things it is I that's a great question because it's so true and it's something with this next novel I'm writing that's another reason I wanted a little bit of time Um, as much time as I could have to really explore what I wanted to say and what the story should be, because, um, there's always an expectation and it's very hard to write and not think, oh, well, somebody's going to say something about this part. Somebody won't like this. Um, I'll get feedback on that because the truth is you're going to get feedback on everything. Nobody's going to like everything you do. Um, but I think also, I guess I'm worried this sounds a little selfish. I think you also keep setting the bar higher for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I shouldn't, you know, like I keep thinking if I can just get here, I'll be so grateful. Like I remember when I was looking for an agent, I thought that's all I need. If I just have an agent, I'm good. Like (laughs) the rest is okay. Whatever happens, happens. But then you get an agent. And so obviously you're going to hope for a great editor. And then you Mm -hmm. hope that people in-house 
love the book. And then you hope that, you know, people in this wider circle who love Kidlet will also love your book. And so it's really hard. And I don't think there's anything wrong with hope or even hoping for success, but it can, it can get you down really quickly when um, a book doesn't resonate the way you hoped it would when someone doesn't see the heart of what you were writing about. Or, you know, for me, it's um, tempting sometimes to look at other authors and think, oh, I should be further along in my career if this is the point that, that they're at now. Um, and all of that takes away just from the work you're trying to do. The thing that always pulls me back to a good place, one is getting off social media for a while. I take mm -hmm. very long social media breaks. I heard somebody say once that basically on social media, you see everybody's highlight reel. Um, oh, yeah. You don't see the work, you know, that goes into it or the, the hard days that you have because of it. And two, um, just finding my way back to the story. I know I want to tell more than anything. And one way I do that is I keep a lot of good feedback <laughs> from kid readers. Um, they send me really sweet letters and things. And when I read their letters, that to me is the pinnacle of success. It really is when they tell me it helped them feel brave or even if it just makes them laugh. Like what a treasure is that to think you gave somebody something to laugh about when they were reading. Um, those are really special to me. So those help me find my way back to the place I need to be in to, mm -hmm. to write. But writing and publishing, they're very different things. And if I can keep that in my head and in my heart, I tend to do a little bit better. You know, at the end of the day, you can only write the story you want to tell. You can only make the art that you love that, that excites you and inspires you. And, um, and whatever happens after that happens, you don't really have any control over it either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's an important thing, you know, to realize. And like you said, like read the kid reviews, like who cares? Like that exactly. what adults say, you know what exactly. I mean? It's all about who you're writing it for. Totally. So. Totally. Anytime I get wrapped up, um, and anything that's sad or anything that stings a little bit, um, there's a drawer where I keep all of my letters. <laughs> Those are the ones I pull out. Um, they are so special to me. Or sometimes when I do school visits, especially for a snicker of magic, um, I don't know if you remember from the book, but there's a tattoo that shows up on people when they need a oh, little yeah, bit of the courage, bird. the bird and kids will draw the bird on their arm. And they'll show me, or I've had emails from teachers. One, one little girl drew the bird on her arm because she wanted to pass a test. I can't remember Aww, what that's that. so or, cute. Or the beetle is this mysterious character in A Snigger of Magic that sneaks around and does good things. And that's something readers love to do. They love to be the beetle. And that makes me so happy. Uh, one of my favorite beetle stories is a little boy who left... Well, I knew it was a boy. I shouldn't say that because his identity was supposed to be secret since he is the beetle. Um, <laughs> but he left a packet of Taco Bell hot sauce and an Oreo on his teacher's desk with a note. <laughs> and I thought those two things are a treasure for a 10 year old. You know, that's a big deal. That's so cute. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you've if you've made it into the heart of my 10 year old who nine times out of 10 would rather be watching, you know, a James Charles makeup tutorial on YouTube <laughs> than doing anything. But, you know, she's shutting her laptop down to be like, let's read the book. Let's oh see what gosh, the yeah. let's see what the problem children are up to today. Like, you know, that's saying something. It's so huge. I can't believe people actually give their heart to something I've written or decide that's worthy of my imagination. It is extremely wild and humbling. So it's very special. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. And you know, the, the thing is too, like, I think, you know, we all do. We think back to the books we read with our parents and like how special they were, you know, like to me, like I think back, like, 
I mean, we always read like the Laura Ingalls Wilder series or, you know, or we read Island of the Blue Dolphins. That was always like my favorite. And I've read that with Tallulah. And now oh, I think yeah. to myself, like, she's going to look back and think about these books, you know, oh, like A Snicker so of sweet. Magic or Keys to the Extraordinary. And like, those will be the books she's going to want to read with her kids. So, oh, and that's the hope. You know, I think deep down we all want to do something that's evergreen with our lives, right? Something that's mm-hmm. going to last. So it's exciting to think maybe somebody would love a book and that they actually want to share it with the kids in their life someday too. Well, I think you have done it. Oh, cool. Thank you. So let's see. I've, I've got like so many questions, but I don't want to keep you like on the phone for forever. So I want to like just go back to like the actual part of like writing. Like, so if someone's listening to this, like I we talked about a little bit earlier and they want to be an adult fiction writer. So you mentioned a step one agent, not straight to the publisher nine times out of 10. Right. So once you have your agent, like, and you do the Corey thing, like, like within the craft industry, typically you might like pitch an idea, pitch the chapters, and then maybe give like a sample paragraph. So if someone is going to try to pitch a book, do they, do you typically send off the whole kit and caboodle or do you send off like, here's an outline and here's a, like, what's the, what's the step one? That is a great question. Um, And I can only tell you for sure what's worked for me and what I know that other writers have done, especially in children's publishing, adult publishing might be a little bit different, but I would say even before the query part, and this is probably obvious, but I think I wanted to skip this part for years. I would say focus on craft, on writing the absolute best novel you can write. Um, For children's book writers, there is an incredible organization called SCBWI, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. I think it's scbwi.org or .com. You'll know it. It's a cute site. (laughs) You'll know it. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, And it is fabulous. They have conferences everywhere. They have two big ones on the coast each year, but then there are regional conferences. I'm going to one in September in Nashville, and they're full of sessions just about craft with editors and agents and other writers. And it is exciting stuff if you love this kind of thing. It's a really fun experience. Plus, it gives you um, feedback, even if you're too shy to actually share your work with someone else. They have sessions at these conferences called First Pages where they read someone else's first pages aloud and you hear an editor's feedback on it and that can be super helpful. Um, so that's a great resource. I would say write the best novel you can when it's totally finished because it does have to be finished. Um, then you can start researching agents. I think the best place to do that for me was just in the acknowledgments of other books that I loved. <laughs> um, oh, and I made a, idea. a list of of those agents. And then I researched them online and um, I kind of looked to see when, what they were interested in representing, if they were even open to new clients. Another cool resource for that. And I can send you this because I'm not, I'm going to get it right. I've only had one cup of coffee. So um, <laughs> <laughs> literary rambles is the name of a blog that interviews agents who represent children's book authors. And it's another great place to research someone you might want to work with. The cool thing about an agent, one, obviously, because so many publishers aren't open to just a submission out of the blue, um, they can do that. But they also have such good relationships with editors that they kind of target who to send work to. They know who you would be a good fit with. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them are editorial. Some are hands off. I like having an editorial agent. I love, you know, feedback um, from her on my stuff. And then they're also helping you shape a career, which is really special and exciting. 
So um, research agents. And then I would say once you have a list of like 10 to start with, go and look at their websites and see what their submission guidelines are. Typically, they will want a query letter, which for me was <laughs> felt as hard as writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Like trying to break down this book that, that you finished that's like 40,000 words long into like a paragraph. Um, but there are some good examples of query letters online. I think my agent actually put mine on her blog. I could send you the link to that too if that's something that um, could help anybody about to get to that stage of the process. Um, but you want to craft a great query letter um, to their specifications. That seems to be a really big deal. Like one thing I see a lot is that agents are very turned off by like blanket queries, like to whom it may concern that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So personalize it, send it. Usually they ask for two chapters as an attachment. And then if they like that, they get back to you and request the whole thing. Well, good to know. Like I just had no idea. Typically, typically. I mean, like I said, that could have changed. It's been like, I think seven years now since I've queried, but I think that's still pretty much the process. The, the general – yeah, because, you know, like for crafting, sometimes I'll I'll talk to people and be like, I'm writing this craft book and then I'm going to pitch it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold your horses. Like don't, don't go to all that trouble because then they may come back and say, you know, no, or we want it this way. Like, you know, I know they're two very different genres, but – Interesting, right. And I've read that about nonfiction as well, that usually um, agents who represent that field or even publishers think publishers are a little bit more open – you know, to unsolicited work in that field would prefer a proposal or, mm -hmm. you know, a few chapters as opposed to this whole thing. So yeah, that makes sense. Well, totally different worlds. So let me ask you this. And I'm not, I don't want to assume that all writers are introverts because I know that's like, you know, a stereotype, <laughs> but how much, like, again, within the craft genre, within, you know, the DIY industry, a lot of it, a lot of your success lies within your own social media prowess, you know, and how right. much you can promote it. Like within the, you know, children, young adult fiction genre, like how much are you expected to like do a book tour, do speaking engagement, you know, do early morning podcasts with complete strangers like me? Oh, this like, is a treat. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, I get to have coffee with you, which I've wanted to do I know, since I, I keep found seeing your you with your coffee. I'm like, I should have brought my cup in here. What was I thinking? Oh, um, you know, it is important and it seems like it's, it kind of varies. I'm lucky that I work with two publishers. I work with HarperCollins, the Catherine Teigen imprint there, and also Scholastic, and they've been super supportive. But every author I know, and I'm in this same boat, you are expected to do some promotion on your own, whether it's some events you're doing on your own or, um, you know, I have an incredible independent bookstore in my town called Starline Books, and they've been wonderful about helping with launch parties to get the word out about my books when they come out. Or, um, you know, if people want like signed books, sometimes around the holidays, they can call there and they'll ship it to them and that kind of thing. So they've been helpful. Um, and social media, gosh, that's a game. I just honestly, I don't know how to play. Like, I don't think I do it right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure publishers would prefer you had a huge social media outreach at this point. Um, but again, like with anything else, all I really know is, is to be myself, which is sometimes kind of awkward. So, you know, I feel like Instagram is definitely a place I feel a little bit more comfortable, probably because I know I can just put pictures of my dogs on there all day and it counts. <laughs> um, Facebook has been a great place for me, especially to connect with teachers and parents. Um, mm -hmm. You know, young readers aren't really on Facebook, but that's not, you know, 
on that you're connecting with people um, who might, you know, read this and think, oh, my niece or nephew would love this. So that's a cool way to connect with those people. And then Twitter to me feels like a crowded high school cafeteria where everybody's talking at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you say something and nobody hears it. But um, I try to be genuine on social media. A rule somebody gave me when I started, I think it was my agent, was like, if you retweet or share something that somebody said about you, and you should, I mean, obviously you want this person to know you're so grateful, make sure you lift somebody else up to you, you know, like for every cool tweet that you share, that's about something you've done, tweet about another book that you love or, you know, retweet another author that you like. And so that's helped. That helps a little bit. That makes it feel more personal for me. That's good. Yeah. I remember years ago when I wrote my book, the naughty secretary club, which is not about porn. It's about jewelry. I promise. But But like back then, you know, they would literally ask, like you would have to tell them, like, I have this many followers on this platform. I have this many people on my newsletter. Like, you know, those were things they wanted to know, like how, what were you, like, what can you do for me? Like, what were you going to do? You know? And I think in nonfiction, that's still probably more important than Mm -hmm. fiction. Not that, you know, a publishing house wouldn't love it if an author also happened to have a huge social media reach. But in nonfiction, I think it's a bigger deal. I think platform is a little bit more mm-hmm. um, something Expected. they hope you've crafted more before they get to you. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it all. Okay. Well, I'm going to end with a quick lightning round, which, you know, you don't have to be lightning about, but I do love me a lightning round. So as we wrap up, so the first one is I gave you a few other fun facts there at the beginning, but another fun fact. Now, did you say you're in Chattanooga? I am. Yes. Okay. You are the second person in Chattanooga. I have interviewed for the podcast. It is true. The other one is Emily Thompson of Being Boss, and she owns a store there called Almanac Supply Company. Oh my gosh. Have you ever been there? I have not, but I'm writing this down do it it's like crystals and candles and oh, craft classes yeah write it down i was curious I, I, was like, I wonder if she's ever been there oh i'm gonna find it i love quirky shops it's a good one and all of her stuff her being boss like podcasts and books like you know she is she is on it that lady all right second question my daughter who I think this is going to be the only podcast episode she'll ever listen to. Insisted I ask, and I'm sure you get asked this a million times. She wants to know what your favorite flavor of ice cream is. Oh, I love that question. I am asked this question a lot, especially by young readers. And another thing I tell them is that, I mean, basically when I was writing a Snickers Magic, because there's so much ice cream in that book that I considered it research <laughs> to right. eat lots of ice cream. So that's why you should always put like delicious food in books. Um, Okay, my favorite right now is by Jenny's, and it's the Brambleberry Crisp. Um, mm. My favorites change seasonally, but that's my favorite right now. Oh, I like this. I've never had that. It's solid. I mean, it's a little bit of an investment ice cream, but if it's a special <laughs> occasion, it's worth it. <laughs> investment ice cream. I like this. I'm going to start. I'm going to rotate that into the vernacular. <laughs> investment ice cream. All right. And the last question that I ask everybody is, if I were to come and see you in Chattanooga, where would we go for queso? This question is an important one to me and one I've taken very seriously because I don't joke about queso. I would take you to Taco Mamacita's downtown. One, because everything there is delicious. Also, because it's beside um, Milk and Honey, which has the best gelato ever. 
And then from there, you can walk down through the North Shore and explore all these funky little shops in Chattanooga. And um, it's a it's a good place. Yeah, yes. I love it. Now I've got two excuses to come to Chattanooga, you and Emily. So, yes. and now Queso, she, I think she had to tell me somewhere in like Alabama where she's from, if I remember correctly. So I'll have to tell Emily that you've got a Queso recommendation there in Chattanooga. <laughs> you can tell her to tell her to hit me up. I mean, I am happy to go do more research as well. <laughs> Um, One of my favorite research projects, I'm always trying to find like the best red lipstick and the best chocolate chip cookie recipe. So to that very important esteemed list, I can add best queso on Chattanooga. I love it. I will assign you that task. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) All right, Natalie, thank you so much for hanging out and talking and just giving us all this wisdom. I feel so like now I want to write a children's. You should. (laughs) Or I feel like I can talk to somebody about it now. You know, really, I think everybody, I do believe that everybody has a story to tell. However you tell it, whether it's through a children's book or through jewelry or through um, the art you make on Instagram, whatever it is, um, I get excited when people want to create. So thank you for what you do and thanks for inviting me to this. It was so much fun. Oh, good. Of course. Each time I chat with a different creative business owner, an author totally counts, I learn something new. Even if I have absolutely no intention of ever writing a fiction novel, with all of those pearls of wisdom that Natalie just gave, I totally feel like I could. I don't care if you have kids in the young adult fiction age range or not, if you love a beautifully written book, pick up any of the titles from Natalie Lloyd. Tallulah and I have read A Snicker of Magic, Keys to the Extraordinary, and we are currently working on book number one of The Problem Children. That's Problem with an I. Thank you so much, Natalie, for stopping by and chatting. You guys be sure to pop over to creativecaso.com for the show notes and links to find Natalie in all of her books. While you're over there on Creative Queso, be sure to check out the weekly Taco About It Tuesday interview series. This week, one of my current Instagram crushes, Amy Doggett of Kitty Witty Papercraft, stops by to chat with me about her junk journaling business. Give me all the vintage ephemera and glue sticks like now. Remember to please subscribe, share, rate, review, and all of the above. It's just, you know, it makes my heart so happy when you guys do that. Almost as happy as when you tag me on your pictures of queso. Thank you, Tamara Gossett, for producing, Chris Beck for the music, and you for listening. If you want to hang out all week long, you can find me at Creative Queso or at Jennifer Perkins on Instagram. And I will see you dudes next week. <laughs>